0: Practical Wisdom, Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen and I am the host of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an associate professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Fernesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Okay, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This is Phrenesis, and today we have a returning guest. Uh, His bio is going to be in the show notes, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that today, Uh, but he is at Antioch University he is a professor he was my dissertation chair he's an incredible guy he's a cyclist he's a father he's a husband and he's an incredible thinker and it's john worgan and so john thank you so much for joining me again for a really fun conversation about your book deep learning
1: well thank you scott uh, i have to i have to admit that when you gave me a chance to be on your show again i'm going well scott must have gone through his entire rolodex <laughs> Of people, and now, and now he's starting over again. Uh, but it's a pleasure to be on again, and thanks for asking.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Well, John, I was admitting to you before we started that I'd received the book when we talked the first time, but I had not gone through it. You know, so we had a nice conversation about the book and about the work. Uh, I now have had time to really digest this work, and it's really timely for me. I'm working on an article right now with with a colleague, Dave Rush, who's at the University of Illinois. And I think our working title right now is From Mission Statements to Mission Critical. And that's really a challenge on a lot of the the marketing techniques that our universities and institutions are using with the word leadership. But are they really, truly serious about developing leaders? And it's mission critical right now because we need people who are, as Robert Keegan would say, uh, who are working at uh, different levels of complexity as they take on these incredibly difficult, challenging positions of leadership. And so, in our programs, are we talking and are we are we focused on helping people develop, uh, as Torbert and Eigel and Kuhnert would say, vertically? I don't know that Keegan would use that language, but he would say, you know, developing through the stages and are we also providing some of that knowledge around effective leadership so i'm i'm reading this book and john this is going to sound so weird but i was i was proud it was like holy buckets i even sent you an email i think that had a passage and i wrote bam because this piece of ernest boyer is smiling in his grave this piece of integrative scholarship is just incredible you are weaving so many scholars so many thinkers into this one beautiful piece of work and so when I say proud, I, that's my dissertation chair. That's John Worgan. Go, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you feel that celebrity when you walk around Virginia right now, but you
1: should. <laughs> uh, no, no. Uh, well, thanks. It's a, it's a lovely compliment coming from a person who is among the best, most widely read uh, people in the leadership field. I appreciate it. Well,
0: John, you just do such a beautiful job. And and for listeners who have not explored the book, of course, it'll be in the show notes. But you do a beautiful job of helping the reader understand, to the best of our knowledge right now, how we create environments for people to engage in deep learning. Uh And as you know, when you type in deep learning on Amazon, we get a lot of artificial intelligence types books. (laughs) And yours (laughs) is there with the person standing looking at all of you know, whatever they're looking at in that that powerful image of yeah. kind of a disorienting space, maybe that they're in. Yeah. You do yeah. such a beautiful job of integrating Heifetz and Keegan and Torbert and Dewey and Chicksenmihai. And you just have all of these scholars, Mezzaro, Brookfield, that you've brought into this one space that I think all offer us clues. And then you're saying, well, look, Peter Vale looks at it this way, and Senge looks at it this way. And so based on these pieces of work, we can probably assume x. Mhm. Would you talk just for a little bit about your process of even designing that that text because it's beautiful. Oh, well thanks.
1: As I may have mentioned the first time we talked I had become really concerned about the nature of public discourse in this country. And this was in 2018 people engaging in what I call drive-by learning that is just cherry picking information that happened to agree with their particular point of view, and then becoming further reinforced every time they see, you know, confirm- they engage in confirmation bias. And, you know, and I thought, there's a lot of hand-wringing about this. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've, I've, I've been around the field of adult learning a long time. I think there is a way to think through how to deal with this mess. And so I started doing all of, this, all of this research and pulling together ideas from John Dewey, of course, who is my idol, all the way through to the most recent thinkers, Keegan in particular, but also Torbert and leadership scholars and so forth. And looking at this through the eyes of an educational psychologist, which I am. How can we take what we know about adult learning and how to enhance it? that could be in the service of helping people understand why it is so difficult to cross this chasm that we seem to have uh, in terms of particular worldviews. And so that's how it started. And I spent about three months just sort of pulling these resources together, developing some preliminary ideas, yeah, and, and then just went for it.
0: You know, on on page 52, because you do a really nice job of also what I what I really loved, I'd never thought of it this way, John, kind of what we're up against, so to speak. Uh-huh. Yeah. You do a beautiful job of helping the reader understand, look, these are some of the things at the very beginning, you kind of hooked me. Okay, these are some of the things we're up against, the, the confirmation bias or the my side bias, and some of the other factors that we're really going to have to confront and we're going to have to navigate Mm -hmm. if we're going to create this environment for deep learning. Right. Yeah. And you, in the front part of the book, you do a really nice job. I was joking with you before we started that, you know, it's bullet two on page 52 in the, Integrating principles section. I'm I'm acting like a Star Trek fan, a little too geeky, right? You remember that bullet, right? <laughs> but you say I'd I'd love to go through a couple of these bullets and just get some commentary out from you because I think okay. there's incredible wisdom in some of these statements. So deep learning requires a certain level of consciousness that routinely pays attention to feelings, especially feelings of disorientation. Those who learn deeply have learned to follow that disorientation. So right. this is a version of metacognition, right? Yes. Exactly. But I'm, I'm looking at that feeling as something to spark curiosity and to explore. And of course, you bring Kahneman into this, the thinking fast and slow. Am I accurate in saying that maybe then that's an opportunity for a type 2? And maybe you would define type 2. That's exactly, that's exactly right. And thanks
1: for bringing up Kahneman because uh, that's what kind of sparked my thinking on this, thinking fast and slow. You know, his notion that our default option is to grab on to whatever occurs to us in the moment to do. Uh, And in this case, it's if we're feeling disoriented, the intuitive response is I got to get rid of this disorientation. It's uncomfortable. Yes. So if you're feeling like you're at the edge of your comfort zone, what you want to do using the thinking fast and slow terminology, again, is pull back to the center, pull back to a place that's comfortable
0: homeostasis right
1: yes exactly when in fact what we've learned throughout the past hundred years is that people learn most deeply when they don't when they sit with the disorientation and ask themselves what is this about why is this why is there is there this disturbance in the homeostasis as you as you said yeah How why we... am i why am i triggered yeah why am i triggered you know, it's, it's, it's what Mesereau called a disorienting dilemma. But in my book, what I try to do is maintain that we aren't necessarily always driven to learn deeply by being thrown off by a disorienting dilemma. Yes. We feel disoriented in many ways, in many small ways throughout the day that really don't rise to the level of disorienting dilemma that forces us to think differently there are all of these other small disorientations that, with some mindfulness, we can uh, pull out of our unconscious, turn it into something tangible, and that's what I mean by following it. Don't dismiss it, but say your body is telling you something. Figure, help it. it, it listen to your body, see what is going on, follow that disorientation, reflect on what might have caused it. And then consider whether this might require a different way of thinking yeah. about a situation. It's <clears throat> it's 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 putting yourself in that state of what I call constructive disorientation, which I think to me is the central idea of the book, frankly. It's how do you find that sweet spot between comfort and anxiety? Yes, right? That that place where you are just uncomfortable enough. To be motivated to examine this and reflect on it, but not so uncomfortable that your tendency is to want to pull back, escape, and go to a com- more comfortable place. It, it can be a very narrow band, Yes, but one that I think is, is crucial to deep learning. Bullet one, section 3.3, 3, integrating
0: uh-huh. sp- principles on page 52, uh-huh. you say this. <laughs> For listeners, he's looking at his book.
1: <laughs> we were joking at the beginning uh, before, we, before we started the podcast. So you so you say, I'm, sure okay. you've, I'm sure you've memorized these principles, and then I'm going, What principles? <laughs>
0: so, well, you, you phrased this beautifully, and it kind of gets to because I went directly to bullet two, but you say deep learning is not bound by time or circumstance, deep learning is instead a disposition. Yeah. Driven by a sort of, and I love this, humble curiosity that there's always more to know, and that the result of that knowing will make for a more satisfying and efficacious life. Yeah. That, that humble curiosity. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah, exactly. It, it's, um, it's what Peter Vale wrote about years ago when he talked about always approach problems as a beginner. Yes. That's what I was trying to get at here. Uh, not like you're an expert who has all the answers and you're going to apply your expertise because uh, you have what it takes to solve the problem. Sometimes that's true, of course. But when you're dealing with issues of great complexity, you know, that in, in which, um, you know, adaptive learning in Heifetz terms is what is required. The, the, the way to do that is to approach it through a humble curiosity, which basically means I don't have the answers here. But I, uh, I'm going I'm to become vulnerable enough to admit that I don't have the answers but I, and, and to be curious about what might help.
0: And it seems to me that that might be one of the greatest defenses against the probably dozens and dozens and dozens of cognitive biases that are working on us. That's right. Is that accurate?
1: That is totally accurate. There is one way in which I take issue with a, a Nobel laureate. <laughs> have you told him did you tell no, him this? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you should send him a memo uh, and let him know
1: yeah i no, i'm afraid <laughs> to uh, <laughs> the, uh, the near the end of his book thinking fast and slow kahneman uh, wrote about his being a pessimist and how uh, he does not think that there uh, is a way to uh, keep these cognitive biases from hampering our ability to uh, exist in the world
0: wow interesting yeah
1: i i disagree now i i do agree that we will always have these kinds of cognitive biases with us that's how we've evolved as a species i get that but to say that we're that that or to infer or to imply rather that we are then forever victims of those biases is i think unduly pessimistic what I yeah. because what I try to argue in the book is that there are in fact ways to uh, to deal with them through critical reflection and mindfulness and this notion of of constantly reflecting on your worldview in a way that will you know help you recognize how to live in a world as complex as this is.
0: You go on to say. In a really nice way, deep learning occurs as a result of opposing forces or dialects Mm -hmm. always in tension. How someone lives with, acknowledges, and manages these tensions will determine in large measure how he or she develops the capacity to live effectively in the world. Yeah. Talk about that.
1: I want to live
0: effectively, John. Help me out here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I spend a whole uh, chapter uh, in the book, as you know, talking about dialectical thinking. And, you know, and I think it's important to, uh, to, to make a distinction here uh, between a sort of a Marxist view of a dialectic, which is opposing arguments that will eventually lead to uh, a synthesis. My wife is a dialectical thinker in that respect. So virtually every time I bring up an idea or an opinion, she immediately takes the opposite point of view, (laughs) which has led to some really interesting conversations, I might add. Uh, But that's not the sort of dialectical thinking I was talking about. I was talking about more of an East Asian uh, view of dialectics, which is to develop the capacity to hold contradictory ideas in the same space. And if there is one thing that I think is the single most important quality for people to try to develop these days, is that notion of acknowledging complexity and feeling as comfortable as you can with holding these contradictory ideas in the same space. You know, it's the the example of a um, father who is working on a very important project for his company and his um, daughter, let's say, has a big soccer game coming up that night. He is pulled by contradictory impulses. He wants to get the project done, and he wants to see his daughter in the soccer game. But he can't do both, at least on the surface. And so instead of being buffeted back and forth, uh, choosing one while feeling bad about not doing the other, there's a way of thinking through this complexity that would help uh, come to some kind of space where there is a synthesis of both needs Yeah, uh, in a way that some or that both of them are at least partially met.
0: Well, it reminds me, and, and let me know if I'm off base here, but even as you were speaking, I was thinking of Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy's immunity to change. You know, I, I, I want this in column one. Yeah. I also want these things over here in column three. Right. For right. listeners, I will put a link to a book and a video about about Keegan and Leahy's immunity to change. Mm-hmm. But there's these contra- contradictory, in some cases, desires. Yes. One is a, I, I want to go forward. One is hold, holding strong to some of these things that have served me in certain situations, but may okay. actually hold me back,
1: right? Is that yeah, a version what, of this? Yeah, it's what they call competing commitments. And what is so insightful uh, about this is that these... Comp- Competing commitments are often unconscious. You're yes. not aware that you have them. And so the process is, is one of bringing these to the surface so that you can deal with them. That's part of a whole mindfulness ethos, right? Yep. It's 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 in sub, in, instead of being subject to, to these competing commitments, you pull them out, you look at them as objects yes. to deal with.
0: We go on to becoming one who learns deeply is not just a solitary process. Deep learning happens through interaction with others, with enough confidence in oneself that others' perspectives are valued as tools to one's own development. And in our original episode, I called it, it has to be with others. And I know that you feel strongly that this can't just be something that's happening in our head. It has to be with others. But I think there has to be care to how that setting is
1: set up. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. It's about trust, I think, Scott, before you are able to engage in a conversation that we hope will lead to examination of one's worldviews as being in, in ways that is informed by the presence of others, where... You understand other people's own worldviews. Uh, there has to be, a, a, you know, enough trust to create just enough vulnerability to let yourself be heard, step out to the edge, and not worry about getting clobbered <laughs> by the other person for expressing yes. that view. Yes, I, I think the the pathway to that is to develop empathy and engage in uh, deep listening, and, and that that so I. It, you can't have a useful dialogue that might lead to deep learning on both sides until there is this spirit of mutual empathy for the other person. Doesn't mean you agree with them. Doesn't even mean that you like them or sympathize yeah. with them. But you sort of get where they're coming from.
0: Yes. And
1: and once the other person realizes that they um, are engaging in this process of trying to understand where you're coming from then uh, then that that's the basis for a conversation that can potentially lead to deep learning.
0: Incredibly difficult to do incredibly oh,
1: yeah. difficult to do.
0: Well I've, I think of some conversations I've been involved in where maybe the topic was diversity equity and inclusion and you begin with this room of individuals let's uh, the instance I'm thinking about there's maybe 70 people in the room and some individuals are tired of the conversation. Uh, because Mm -hmm. they uh, are just tired and they're frustrated. Other Mm -hmm. individuals, it's the first time they've been in a space to have this conversation. Other folks are coming off with a tone that's like, oh, you don't get it. Other people are then shutting down. Other people are then getting agitated. And it's just this really, really interesting, difficult space to manage and to facilitate because – if you're really going to get to some meaningful conversation that takes some master facilitation
1: it does right? absolutely it's someone who is able to maintain among people a my term a feeling of constructive disorientation that they're in a space that isn't comfortable for them but they have the sense that the that is going to get better and but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's incredibly difficult, and it is so easy, especially on topics of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, to be judgmental, to you know, for people who feel like, well, I'm woke and you're not, yeah, <laughs> or from the other side, people who find um, those pushing for progress on some of these issues as being supercilious and moralistic and so forth folks don't like to feel judged i mean that's obvious uh so but so so again that's why it's so important to work to get to people into a space where they begin to practice empathic listening first
0: yep, yeah and creating those conditions but that being with others i think you caught you talk a little bit about some of the most constructive learning spaces are when those groups are Diverse on, yes. on a number of different dimensions, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, what's the point of, uh, you know, talking to people who mostly share your worldview where you're, you're in a bubble again? <laughs> you know, it's uh, you you're might, just you, in you, an I,
0: analog chat room, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you, in fact, you're having a really good time,
0: right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Reinforcing each other. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, I've been there. I've done that. But yeah, you've got to have you've got to have this diversity, and and not just in the obvious ways, right? Not just in terms of political diversity or ethnic diversity, but in in ways where where people are able to draw upon their own life experience as it has framed and helped frame their worldview. You know, they can tell stories about that experience. People can relate to stories. You can you can uh, empathize with stories. And, and once you're able to do that, uh, the stories can be incredibly powerful means of stimulating a deep learning kind of experience. Because the more you are able to not just engage with, but in some ways, identify with another person's story. Yeah. And empathize you will, to
0: your previous point.
1: Yeah. Then it's, it's, it's much more likely, not necessarily that you're going to adopt that person point of view that's not the idea but but it's going to create enough disorientation in your own view to make you wonder about what parts of that might need to be reflected upon
0: well and and i love towards the end of the book and this is not i'm not i'm moving off of the bullets we're going to come back to the bullets but i'm moving off of them but (laughs) you, you very beautifully talk about how the arts can help open up some of those spaces Oh yeah. And storytelling is maybe a version of, right. of the arts, but yeah. that it can be a conduit for people to to open themselves, to mm-hmm. become vulnerable
1: and to yeah. identify with another story, right? What's wonderful about the arts, Scott, is that you are not you can feel vulnerable but you don't appear vulnerable. Yes. In other words, you can ex- you can experience art even very provocative art in your own way. And if you Allow yourself to follow the disorientation that may be caused by that artwork, whether it's a statue or a Banksy poster or a, a play or whatever, even a even a novel. If you allow yourself to uh, not just experience the disorientation, which is often what, what people do with art just for the sake of feeling a bit disoriented or you're... you're all of a sudden you're in somebody else's world uh, to uh, to use that as a way to to say, well, what is that? What is that feeling I'm having about? Yes. Why am I a little rattled by seeing this painting yep. uh, or viewing the statue? What is that about and what can I learn from what that what what sort of emotions are uh, have been stimulated by that?
0: It's interesting John even as you are speaking I'm thinking back to my time at Antioch in, in the program and this is what 2002 2003 mm-hmm. and I apologize I don't necessarily remember what every one of your lectures was about or what uh, Dr Holloway's lectures were about or ALS or uh, even Peter Vales but some vivid memories for me one of them was when we, as a cohort, visited the Museum of Tolerance in L.A.
1: Oh, right, yeah, uh-huh.
0: and that that was incredibly impactful. I hadn't had an experience like that before. I hadn't visited a museum of that nature before. I hadn't, I hadn't lived that. And all of a sudden, having that experience, but then coming back and actually processing that with the group. To your point, you know that that whole it has to be with others. I'm the kid there with kind of the eyes wide open. I didn't know that was a thing. Of course, I'd heard of the Holocaust and some of those atrocities, but I'd never been immersed in it in that way. Yes. Incredibly yes. powerful.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's a beautiful example of what I was talking about. Yeah. You know, you could go to a, a museum like that and come away from it going, well, it wasn't that awful. Mm. You know, uh, I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with it those poor people and then that's as far as it goes yeah or you could do what you did which is acknowledge how that really disoriented you Mm -hmm. and how then thankfully you had the space to debrief all of this with other people so that you could better understand what that meant
0: yeah and a, yeah. in a very diverse group of people, whether that yeah. was, you know, at the time I'm 25 or whatever, and I'm there with individuals who had a lot more life experience, and, yeah. and in in a number of different ways, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I would I would I would guess I mean the the, the fact that you have remembered that moment yeah. after all of these years, yeah. I would suggest that was a deep learning moment for you.
0: Yeah. Oh, for sure.
1: Yeah. For sure. And, and you know, wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had more of those kinds of moments where people can get ex- exposed to and provoked uh, by something that they might not have otherwise sought out mm-hmm. um, and use that as a as a as a as a trigger for self-reflection, especially reflection with others uh, who have had a similar experience. The world can be a very different place. Yes. <laughs> okay.
0: okay. Second to last bullet, sir. Okay. (laughs) Let me see. Which one was that? (laughs) A deep learner accepts the reality that making meaning out of chaos is only temporary and that the turbulence is ongoing and inevitable. A deep learner finds forming and reforming meaning perspectives to be a creative challenge and thus intrinsically rewarding. Yeah. Talk about that. Is it the there's enjoyment in the process of having my worldview of having my assumptions kind of challenged and being exposed to new ways of thinking or being? Is that, is that the spirit of this, John?
1: That's that, that's the spirit of it. John Dewey wrote about how learning is in, in people is always about this tension between our innate curiosity to know about the world on the one hand and our need for safety on the other
0: it goes back to that Keegan which I'm going to put in the put the Keegan and igel podcast episode I was telling you about before this.
1: Mm-hmm. We want to
0: live and thrive and grow but we also want to not die and stay safe, right? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly
1: right. Yep. That's exactly right. Uh and so that that's what it's about. It's um uh you know developing this sort of deep learning disposition if you will where uh, you recognize that uh, in many ways, as we have learned to be in society, our innate curiosity about the world is not well served. Mm. Right? Yeah. I mean, look at, the, look, at, look at what happens with little kids. They're curious about everything. And they thrive on learning about the world simply because they want to know. Yeah. And they want to experience, and they want to get out there. After a while, the, the safety issues start kicking in, you know, Al, in terms of conforming to uh, the school curricula, to to all of the things that you need to learn to become an adult. Yeah. You know, what Keegan refers to as stage three, right? Yeah. And it could lead to to uh, that that sense of innate curiosity being suppressed. Yeah. Uh, and so part of what I was trying to say there was a, a deep learning mindset gives us permission to continually be curious about the world and to find intrinsic satisfaction in that. Uh, I, I think that's one element of wisdom, as a matter of fact, mm. right? Don't you think? It's acknowledging that you never had stuff figured out, that you, all you have is sort of temporary understandings that will be inevitably replaced by other temporary understandings. Hopefully. And it just goes on forever. Hopefully. <laughs> 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 and, and that's okay, Yeah, actually. Fact, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's, okay. The, that's the work. That's the process. That's, that's it's, the process. Yep. Exactly. And, you know, and I think level five in Keegan's terms is very hard to describe. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not sure he or anybody else does a particularly good job of it. You know, it's a sense of transcendence. Well, what in the heck is that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think you just hear that and it happens, right? (laughs) Uh, 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 Yeah. Oh, that was a good note. You just, you, uh,
0: you uh, you levitate a little bit off the ground and you, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Ah, yeah, There it is again. Yes, exactly. But I think a much simpler way to look at it is what I was just talking about. You know, it's a, it's like a, uh, and understanding that the world is incredibly complex and chaotic, and we're never going to figure it out completely, but it, it's, it, you know, it's, it's all about, uh, you know, holding these contradictions, it's about developing temporary understandings, it's about having the agility to move from one point of view to another gracefully. And, and, oh, and this is where phronesis comes in, Scott. Ah, see? Okay. See? Okay, yeah. Because I, I've always thought of phronesis as, you know, a knowledge of when yeah. to use a particular knowledge base that you have. Yep. Because you, you have several that are all based upon different ways of knowing. Yep. And I think somebody who is really good at phronesis is, is someone who is wise enough to choose the combination of knowings that they have to the surface of a to the surface of a particular situation. I think that's what wisdom is all about. And I think that's what, in some ways, a level five person in Keegan's terms practices as well.
0: There's And I still need to, I I have gone through and recorded my notes for half the book of everything. I oftentimes my process for some reason, is I go through I highlight, a bunch of stuff, and then I go back through and I actually type in, or I've been dictating certain passages into a word document. It helps me solidify some of these things. Uh I still don't, I haven't gotten to this because I know I need to do this. I need to better understand, because your last bullet gets to re- reflexivity. Yeah. So I'm, I'm struggling right now with the difference between reflexivity, critical reflection, mindfulness. These all feel like close cousins. They are. And maybe you can talk a little bit about, I'm not going to ask you to define each one of them, but maybe talk about some of those, those nuances, because it seems like those would be embedded in some of what you just said.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me let me see if I can. Uh, let me let me critically reflect on. Your question. I'm mindful of the fact. That- <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I think. Let me try this this way. I think reflexivity, of course, to me is a disposition. It's okay. a way of being. Okay. Um, that incorporates both mindfulness and. Uh, a critical reflection. Mindfulness will help one critically reflect on whatever disorientation you're feeling about the situation
0: in the um, moment. Type thing, John. In, in the moment.
1: Okay. Yes. Okay. And and reflexivity is the is is learning to engage in mindfulness and critical reflection at the right times. Okay. Does that make sense?
0: It does. So reflexivity would be part mindfulness, part critical reflection. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness may be some of that inaction. And I'm mindful of how I'm behaving or how I'm acting or how I'm intervening. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's presence there. Critical reflection may be that postmortem on how did that go? What mm-hmm. And really, not kind right. of again. It's a, it's almost like a type two thinking from a Kahneman's perspective of yes. really examining what occurred, not just throwing it away. Right? That's exactly right.
1: And it's good to remember that uh, that the, that mindfulness is based upon emotion. Okay. And critical reflection is based upon cognition. So a, a, a sense of disorientation is a completely emotional kind of of uh, physical experience. It is, it is alerting you to something that you may want to pay attention to. yeah. And that's where the critical reflection comes in or uh, thinking slow in common terms, rather than, as we were saying earlier, just uh, dismissing this, the disorientation and swatting it away like a like a fly, say, oh, you know, that's bothering me, go away. Yeah. Uh, there are times when you don't want it to go. And so it's cultivating that sort of reflexivity mindset but I think as part of this whole deep learning
0: process, you know, I think for listeners, I, I want you to know that we're only on page 50.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and there well, are many more episodes. Are gonna, there, well, are you know, I'll be <laughs> reaching <laughs> back out. I'll say, I read it again, you know? <laughs> but you know, there's, it goes to 176 you all. So there's a whole, There's a whole, just really, really nice deep learning mindset visual. That's a model, and that that really highlights a number of the different ingredients. If you are a leadership educator, if you are interested in helping facilitate leadership learning, if you are interested in creating spaces that maximize an individual's ability to learn, uh, you know, this is. I I think of it almost John, and this is going to sound really weird, but it's almost like it's a cookbook. there's a recipe in here that I think are some of the major ingredients because again, I don't say it's everything because we're always continually learning. I'm sure there's other things that maybe aren't here, but this is such a beautiful, it's just, I I see it as a recipe. I really do. And
1: yeah, it's uh, that, that was kind of in the back of my mind. Uh, I'm I'm thinking back to the work that you and I did some years ago when we Uh, wrote this article together on how adult learning theory should inform leadership theory, yep because it hadn't very yep. much at the time. And look what 's happened in the last fifteen years. Yes you, you know I wouldn't say that today, would yep. you? No, the connection between learning and leadership is I think getting getting stronger all the time. and so one of the things that I really hope this book would do, even though it 's not a leadership book, is to provide a framework for for people who, if you you think about leadership in its simplest terms, which is influencing others to move in a particular direction, well, you have to know a lot about how adults learn and how they don't learn, right? (laughs) In order to get that job done. That was one of the audiences I hope would be interested in the book.
0: Well, John, like last time, I just want to close out by... Asking you if there's anything that's been on your radar recently that's caught your attention. I remember sitting and having, I think we were having breakfast. It may have been in Canada at an ILA. And you were telling me about Thinking Fast and Slow, that you were kind of really immersed in that work. And it was informing mm-hmm. some of your thinking. Any other things that have come on your radar that you want listeners to know about?
1: I don't suppose that includes the cookbooks I've been reading lately.
0: That It does. It does. <laughs> I think your next book should be called Cooking Up Some Leadership. And you know what?
1: (laughs) Well, you were using the term, you know, uh, the metaphor recipe. Yes. Uh, You know, I have have to admit that I'm, uh, because I'm semi-retired, sort of sliding into full retirement, I'm in fact reading a lot of cookbooks. Good. Trying out different recipes and engaging in a sort of humble curiosity about how I might modify this or modify that and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but <laughs> i've got i've got plenty of neighbors who are willing to try out my experiments so uh,
0: and at yeah. least with it with the unlike some of our other work right you you get pretty immediate results as to how it worked you
1: know <laughs> you know you know the minute it comes out of the oven whether this is uh, a keeper or not I'm, I'm. I have to admit, I'm kind of. I'm, as far as other books are concerned, I'm at a place where I'll start a book and then stop, mm. and then say, "Nah, I'm really, not interested in this anymore." I'm honestly looking for something that's going to hold my interest for more than just thirty pages. You got any uh, any suggestions?
0: I do. I have so many. Because I asked that question to everyone. And it's like being back in the PhD program where everyone's like, hey, you need to read Blair, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a never ending list, but I'm listening. I'm listening right now to cast. And that's a very, very powerful. Uh, Yes. I
1: I read. Yes. Well, that's I read that book about a year ago and it had a powerful impact on me. So thanks for bringing it up. I, because this is a, this is an excellent example, reading and being disoriented. I'll bet you had the same experience. I never Um,
0: thought about it like that before. I didn't know that was a thing. Sending postcards of of lynchings as a norm, as a behavior through the U.S. Postal Service. I, I, uh, yeah. Uh,
1: And and the notion that 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 the that the the uh, the situation we're facing, not just in the United States, but in many other places in the world, uh, the, the structural disadvantage. Is as much due to caste as it is to race, if not more so, is has has sort of stuck with me. And I'm thinking, do I agree with that? I don't think I do, but boy, it sure made me re-examine some of the assumptions that I had about what is wrong and what has to be done about it. Yes.
0: You know, um, I don't know if I've emailed you about this yet, but do you have Hulu? Yes. Okay. Have I told you about in and of itself?
1: Yes, you did. In okay.
0: Did you watch it?
1: No, I haven't yet.
0: John Wergen. It has a direct link to some of your work. It is a piece of art that has fundamentally kept me in a place of reflection. It is, it's a, it's a very, very interesting piece. And I, I once you watch it, send me a note and let me know what you think because, we'll and I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast, but I literally just watched it again the other night. And I see something new every time, both in myself and kind of in, as a part of the story that he's sharing and series of stories. So okay. in and of itself.
1: In and of itself. Okay.
0: John, thank you so much, sir.
1: You know, anytime. Uh, it's always so much fun to talk to you. It, you know, you were saying, you know, you were feeling proud um, at the beginning of the podcast. I, I feel so proud about what you've been able to accomplish. Oh, thank you. Know, you. In the past, almost gosh, twenty years. Yes. Can you believe
0: it? Yes. And Good you know word. this this whole experience of having conversations with people from all over the world, and and the the place that it keeps me in this humble curiosity. I I edited a podcast this morning, John, about leadership on the commons, these eco communities that I'd never heard of. I'd never yeah. heard of the this commons. And uh, okay, a new little nook and cranny of this conversation and the world and so uh, it's been a lot of fun and I just can't thank you enough for your time sir thank you for your good work
1: and thank you for doing these podcasts I cannot believe it's almost a hundred yes well you done. are part of this suite
0: of episodes the last five <laughs> 95 through a hundred it's wow. kind of a big deal you might have some people knocking for movie rights and oh right
1: know, sure uh, wow. it's just
0: it's kind of a big thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> take uh, care john thank you so all much right. thank you scott be well
0: so i'm really excited because this is the the first in really a five-part series where i'm having some conversations with individuals very interested in adult development and adult learning So if you are interested in creating spaces where deep learning can occur, similar to this conversation I just had with John, you know what, the next five episodes are going to be of great interest to you. I even have a co-host for one of them and a very special guest for the 100th episode. So I'm very, very excited. If you are passionate about developing leaders, if you are passionate about creating spaces conducive for deep learning... You gotta pick up this book. You just have to. There are some wonderful clues as to how we do that work, how we create spaces for deep learning to occur. And I can't thank John enough for his good work. As I said, Ernest Boyer would be proud. This is a wonderful piece of integrative scholarship. And I'm just thankful that John did this work because I already see it showing up in mine. Stay curious, everybody. Humble curiosity is, I think, how John phrased it, which I absolutely love. Be well, take care, thanks for checking in. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phrenesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, -o Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. (coughs)
1: You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.